Well, please keep your Bibles open in Micah chapter 4. You're going to see tonight, Micah chapter 4 is kind of the mirror image, if you like, to, to chapter 3. So if you weren't here last week, don't worry, I hope uh, we'll, we'll keep you up to speed. But if you were here last week, I'm sure you'll, you'll see some of the uh, connections in due course. But please have that open in front of you. And uh, if you're the sort of person who likes to take notes, if, that, if that's a helpful way for you to keep uh, paying attention, then um, we have a handout here to, to give you an idea of where we're going over the next few moments together. Before we make a start, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Those words from the book of Hebrews again. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Father, we're aware that all around the world your people are gathered at different times, at different places, different countries. And yet we're all part of the same gathered people. Father, tonight, remind us of who we are, remind us of what is to come, and lift our hearts and lift our eyes up to you and to the Lord Jesus, who is enthroned forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1976, there was a 40-year-old man who co-founded a company in Palo Alto, California, his uh, co-founders were a couple of college graduates, pretty nerdy types in their early 20s, and they brought uh, this guy, Ronald Wayne, onto the company in order to be the sensible adult in the company. Unsurprisingly, Ronald found this rather unworkable situation. He found it very difficult to work with them. Uh, they made incredibly risky business decisions, and they left him to pick up all the paperwork after all their disastrous choices. But very wor the worst thing was that how nerdy they were. He found it intensely irritating being around their, their sort of nerdiness. And, and their personal hygiene was just, um, well, left a lot to be desired. So after just 12 days, Ronald Wayne quit the company while he still had some dignity left about him. And his co-founders bought his remaining shares for 800 US dollars. Today, Ronald's shares of Apple computers would be worth an approximate $70 billion. And the man who designed that famous Apple logo is now a forgotten footnote in history. If only he knew, if only he knew what was just around the corner, he would behave so differently, wouldn't he? Well, some would say that being a Christian here in the UK is very difficult, impossible even. Uh, the future prospects of Christianity in this country aren't, aren't looking good, we believe uh, the media. Our newspapers tell us that our church is in terminal decline, whilst Islam and secular atheism are on the rise. Uh, social scientists tell us that our culture is now decidedly post-Christian, which means uh, openly sharing our faith in Jesus in the workplace with our friends is it's becoming taboo, isn't it? Shameful even. We might not say it out loud, but like Ronald Wayne, perhaps we're tempted to sell our shares and get out while we still can. You know, to, to withdraw ourselves from the difficulty of being a public Christian. To withdraw ourselves from the costs of being a serving member of the church. To withdraw ourselves from the pain of battling against the same old sins. Why not sell our shares and get out while we still have some dignity? 
And do you know what? God's people in Micah chapter 3, they would have felt the same way. Their present circumstances were pretty bleak. Jerusalem was languishing under corrupt leadership. Idolatry and immorality and injustice were rife in the city. That's the present. And their immediate future looked even worse. God is sending Babylon to come and crush the city and exile the people. And the, the temple mounts. The mountain where God is supposed to symbolically dwell with his people, that's going to become a ruin. So given their present, given their immediate future, they're asking themselves, why don't we just sell our shares and pack it in while we still have some dignity? Well, what Micah's hearers need to hear is what we need to hear. And is what Ronald Wayne wished he heard. Which is if you only knew, if you only knew what was just around the corner, you'd behave so differently. And Micah chapter 4 is going to give us that glimpse around the corner. We have uh, two points tonight, two separate oracles, but they're very much connected to do with the, the temple in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And our first point is this, the nations will come to Mount Zion. The nations are going to come to Mount Zion. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. Look down with me in your Bibles to verse 1 in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Micah writes this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. There's a new TV show on Netflix at the moment called Stranger Things. Have you come across Stranger Things? That's all, yeah, Alex is nodding, he loves it. The the main premise of this show is that there's a kind of a, a dark mirror image world just beneath us. It's a sort of photo negative reality where everything is kind of reversed. And that's a little bit how chapter 3 relates to chapter 4. Everything we saw wrong in Jerusalem last week is wonderfully restored and fixed here in chapter 4. So let me show you, give me some examples. Notice that just as the mountain of the Lord was trashed by the Babylonians at the end of chapter 3, so here in chapter 4, one day the mountain of the Lord will be restored it will be established. That means it will be made secure, never, never to be stomped on again. It will be exalted, a symbol of God's dominance over all the idolatrous high places in Israel. It will be exalted high above them. Another example, in chapter 3, pagan nations are coming to do violence to do God's people. But notice here that pagan nations are coming to join God's people. Now, I'm not a geographer. Do we have any geographers here? Grace. Grace is our keen geographer. Now, now correct me if I'm wrong, Grace, but when, when rivers flow, they tend to flow downhill, don't they? That's right. They, they tend to follow gravity. They obey the force of gravity. But notice here in verse 1, a human stream, a human river, is going to flow uphill, inevitably, attracted to the magne- magnetism of the Lord our God in Zion. That the conversion of the nations is clearly genuine. They aren't just coming to the mountain for themselves, for security, for blessing, for a good time. No, they want to learn his ways. They want to walk his paths. 
They're even inviting their friends and neighbours saying, come on up, come on up, let's go up together to the mountain of the Lord. But, but notice at the very end of verse 2, there's a, there's a change of direction. Here we read how that human stream which was once flowing into the city now flows outwards to nourish and bless the earth, a bit like the rivers of Eden. So look down to the end of verse 2. It says, the Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now just think, 700 years later, the risen Lord Jesus is telling his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. Why? He tells them not to leave the city until the gift of the Spirit comes. Why? What's so important about Zion? What's so important about this city? Well, you'll know. At Pentecost, what happens? The nations come in. They hear the word of the Lord. And then what happens? They go outwards, out of the city, to preach the gospel among the nations. Do you see here that in chapter 4, we have the blueprint for worldwide evangelization. And it is clearly worked. Beginning with just 11 terrified men in the upper room. Today, a third of the world's population profess Jesus to be their Lord and Saviour. And Bible-believing, evangelical Christianity is the fastest growing component within that. So, friends, this is why we should get on board with the vision being set by our mission task team. We've got to repent of our narrow parochial view of God's mission. Stop thinking that there are certain no-go areas for the gospel. Oh, that's a Muslim neighborhood. Can't talk about Jesus there. Oh, that's a secular country. Can't go there. Oh, they're the rugby lads. Can't talk about Jesus with them. You know, the British Empire, they used to hop around the world, didn't they? And they used to sort of plant flags in the ground and say, oh, this is ours. And the whole globe was pink because of it. But only God can look at every square inch of our planet, stick a flag down and go, mine. It was John Stott who said, we need to become global Christians with a global vision because we have a global God. And this is a wonderful truth. Wherever in, in the world people turn to Jesus, whether it's Tampa Bay, Florida, whether it's Turkmenistan, whether it's Turin or Timbuktu, wherever in the world people are coming to Jesus, they're all coming to the same place. They're coming, in the words of Hebrew 12, to Mount Zion. They're coming to the king. So at present, we're seeing a partial fulfillment of these verses as the good news is being spread around the world. But in verse 3, we kind of get a glimpse of the world when it's finally won over by the Lord our God. Look down at verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I love these words. Once again, they're, they're a beautiful uh, reversal of what we saw last week, that photo negative. If you remember, we, we, there we saw corrupt Leaders were turning a blind eye to injustice in the city. Which meant that the strong nations of Assyria and Babylon are going to come and make war. But here, the Lord himself promises to one day stand as judge of the earth. And then those strong nations will be brought to justice. And peace, peace will come upon the earth. 
and all of those tools which one brought, once brought death and, and destruction, they're going to be turned into tools that bring life and cultivation. So tanks will turn into tractors, bombs into balers, missiles into milking parlours. You might know that at the very end of the 19th century, there was a, there was a massive wave of optimism uh, here in the West. Um, people thought that the, uh, this was going to be a great new era. During the Victorian era, they, they saw huge advances in education, in technology, in economics. I think the wealth gap was, was narrowing at that time as well. People hailed the 20th century. Surely this was going to be a new golden era. Huge optimism. But then, out of nowhere, World War I happened. Right smack bang in the middle of the civilized, educated Western world. They optimistically called it the war to end all wars. But the tragedy is that the 20th century was the most violent in human history. And the way the first 16, 17 years of the 21st century has begun, it doesn't seem as if our century is going to get much better. This sort of evolutionary view of the world, we're only ever going to get better, we're only ever going to improve, it doesn't stack up to evidence, does it? Jesus says that until he returns, nation will take up arms against nation. Only he, only he is going to bring justice and peace on that day when he returns. Yes, yes, as, as the gospel goes out in the world, we should expect to see cultures being shaped and, and transformed and sanctified, if you like. I mean, that's what we've seen here in the UK, hasn't it, over the centuries? I mean, how many countries in the world can you think of where the political leaders are called ministers? Ministers. Because our Christian heritage has so shaped our thinking that we believe our leaders should serve us, not us them. How many countries in the world can you think of where the health service is free at the point of service? Nye Bevan, who was the MP who designed the NHS, called it a little piece of Christianity. So yes, we're going to see the gospel shape and change and transform cultures, but let's not expect the world to always get better and better and better. Here in verse 3, it is clear it's God who's going to bring justice and peace. It won't be us. It won't be us. But in verse 4, we see that on that day, God isn't just concerned with the big sort of macro picture, the big sort of the big plan. He's also concerned, concerned with the micro, the individuals. Look at verse 4. Every man, every woman will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Again, in contrast to the photo negative of chapter 3, where, people, where the weak, they, they feared being turfed off their land and losing their inheritance. Here we have a wonderful image of prosperity and blessing. Because each person has as much as they need and, and no more. There's no fear of persecution, as we are praying for earlier. No fear of redundancy. No fear of cancer. No fear of anxiety or depression. No one, nothing will make us afraid. So as we come to the end of this, this first oracle, this first section, I've just got two bullet point applications for us. The first one's this. Do not be blinded by the present. Some of these images are just too wonderful to believe, aren't they? Um, 
especially when we're, we're smack bang in the middle of a really miserable situation. It just seems like pie in the sky, surely. And Micah's first hearers would have thought that. They wouldn't be able to believe that Mount Zion would, would collapse and then be fully restored, even greater and better than ever. But our God has the power to raise the dead. I love how emphatic he is at the end of verse 4. He says, for the Lord Almighty has spoken, or literally, for the Lord of armies has spoken. God has every single resource at his disposal. What he says he'll do, he will do. So however bleak things might look now in your personal life, in the church, in the, in the country, we can be sure that one day Mount Zion will be the highest. Apparently in the year 1800, St. Paul's Cathedral, on Easter Sunday, guess how many people came along? St. Paul's Cathedral, Easter Sunday, the year 1800. Thousands? Hundreds? Six people. Six people went to church on Easter Sunday. At one point, the English church seemed dead. And a lot of people prayed. And the Lord raised up men like Whitfield and Wesley and a revival broke out. God did it then. He can do it again. Don't be blinded by the present. A second application for us. We need to walk the last day's lifestyle now. Having spoken about the future, Micah in verse 5 comes crashing back into the present. He now starts speaking to his hearers in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. He says this. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now clearly, all of those wonderful things Micah's just shown his people, that beautiful image he's just painted for them, it hasn't taken place yet, has it? Instead, as they sort of look around their city, idolatry and injustice are still reigning. Babylon is still coming to crush Zion and exile them away. But regardless of their present, regardless of their immediate future, the faithful remnant within the city still commit themselves to walk in the name of the Lord. Even though they live among injustice, they're going to live justly. Even though everyone else worships the other gods and bows down to them, they're going to worship the Lord alone. Micah's generation didn't even see a fraction of these promises fulfilled. And yet they pledge their loyalty to God. How much more should we? We who stand at the end of the ages, who in the course of history have seen so much of this fulfilled already. Friends, here is a call for the church to be countercultural, to be distinctive in our business practices, in our sexual ethics, in our generosity. Our present circumstances might look bleak, but let's not be so short-sighted. Let's not be like Ronald Wayne of Apple Computers, because we know exactly what's just around the corner. So let's live now in the light of the future. Let's walk those last days lifestyle now. Now, Micah's uh, second oracle, and and our second point, is is far briefer. Uh, We saw the pagan nations coming to Mount Zion, but here in our second point, we see the Jewish remnant also returning to Mount Zion. 
1982, the Colgate company, they're, they're the ones who make the, the sort of oral hygiene products, they thought they wanted to branch out a bit. They, they were bored of toothpastes and toothbrushes and, and, and mouthwash. They thought, mm, let's capture a new market. So guess what they went for? That's right, you guessed it. They went for ready meals. I didn't think you'd believe me, so I bought some evidence with the Colgate ready meals. Here's their chili chicken surprise, which you could have, you could have uh, savoured. Uh, here is their lean chicken uh, for, the sort of, for the diet range. These weren't a huge success, I won't lie to you. Um, people couldn't quite make the sort of mental connection between sort of oral hygiene and, and a nice tasting dish. But, so they went for fast food. Here is a, here's Colgate burger. It says here at the bottom, maximum cavity protection. I think their food had a... The USP was that their, their food uh, didn't sort of give you a sort of uh, teeth rot. And here is the cookie for the same effect. Unsurprisingly, it wasn't a huge success. What a flop. Uh, they, Colgate learned their lesson, and they forgot ready meals ever really happened. They moved on to something else. And at this point in Micah's message, his first hearers might have thought that's how God saw them. The people of Israel, they're, they're kind of a bit of a risky punt. Uh, God saved them out of slavery. He gave them the law, but in the end, it didn't really work out. Uh, they were a bit of a flop. They didn't perform as he'd wanted so now he's going to focus on a different people, right? Ditch the Jews, let's move on to the Gentiles. Oh, look, great, they did a much better job. Maybe they were thinking like that. Well, verse 6 tells us this sort of replacement theology is utter nonsense. Look at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I've brought to grief, I will make the lame a remnant those driven away a strong nation, the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. See, despite their impending deportation to Babylon, the Lord has not given up on his covenant people. He's like a good shepherd who gathers up the wayward or strayed. He, he, he graciously gathers them for wherever they've been exiled to. And he makes his broken and lame people, a strong nation, a remnant. Now, now, when did all this happen? That's the kind of million-dollar question, isn't it? Well, if you know your Bibles, you might know that it was partially fulfilled at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Ezra. There in 583 BC, King Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jews to return from exile back to Judah. And we might think, oh, that, that seems like this is the, that, that, that's when that's fulfilled. But at that point, they were hardly a strong nation. There are more like a, a weak residue, leftovers, the sort of the drink at the bottom which everyone leaves at the end. Also, some would argue that these verses are fulfilled in 1948 when uh, the state of Israel became a nation again after World War II. But again, I'm not persuaded by that sort of Zionist theology, especially when verse 8 tells us exactly when it was fulfilled. Look at verse 8. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. See, Micah's vision of this restored Jewish nation, it seems to be fulfilled by the coming of the king from, from the former dominion, from, from David's line. This Davidic king will somehow gather a people out of exile. He will watch over his flock and, and somehow win them security. He will usher in an eternal kingdom where he'll rule from Mount Zion. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Jesus to me, doesn't it? it? Sounds a lot like Jesus. Which is why when we hit the New Testament, the gospel writers are at such pains to emphasize that Jesus is the end of exile. Not, not the, the geographical separation but of the people with God, but, but the spiritual separation. Jesus is the one who ends that. Which is why over and over again in all the Gospels, Jesus mentioned healing the crippled, the paralyzed, the lame. He is identified as the shepherd king who will restore the nation of Israel. But more than that, also gather the, the nations to him. So as we close, I've got three, three applications for us. First, I'd like to invite you to come to Mount Zion. Come to Mount Zion. Whether you are here tonight as a Jew or a Gentile, we have been extended the most marvelous invitation. As we've seen over the past few weeks, by our own merits, we cannot approach God. Our sin, our, our iniquity, our thought life, our idolatries, our guilt, we can't come into his presence. We can't approach his holy mountain and live. But Jesus is the king we need. We read in the Gospels how he himself climbed Mount Zion to be crucified. And with a crown of thorns pressed upon his head, the temple of his body was destroyed. He died in order to bring sinners like me, sinners like you, into God's sight. So we can approach him, climb that holy mountain, righteous in his sight. His blood has washed us clean. So to quote verse 2, come, come, let's go up the mountain of the Lord. Can I ask, what is, what is stopping you? What's stopping you from doing that? Is it your sin? Well, it's been dealt with. Is it your shame? Well, it's been covered. Is it your background? Well, it's been forgiven. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Come to Mount Zion today. Come to your king. Come to his cross and be forgiven. If that's you, please come chat with me afterwards. Today would be a great day to come to Mount Zion. Here's a second application for us. We can enjoy assurance. Now, I don't know, you might have thought the whole Jew-Gentile distinction in this passage is a little bit irrelevant. I mean, why should we Gentiles? Imagine 95% of us here are Gentiles. Why should we care if God still has business with the Jews? I mean, who cares? But this is great news for us. Great news. Because God doesn't make mistakes like the Colgate ready meals. God doesn't have a sort of disposable people who, who he ditches if, if, if they don't perform. If he kept his promises to that Jewish remnant, then we can trust he'll keep his promises to us. In fact, as we read the New Testament, we see that God has a great plan for the Jewish people, which is why here at St. John's we're so passionate about sharing the good news of Jesus with our Jewish friends and neighbours. We want to introduce them or reintroduce them to their Messiah. And that's why we've got this Jews for Jesus training event on the 25th of February. Please do come along, because we want our Jewish friends to not only come to Mount Zion, but to enjoy assurance. Here's the third thing. Finally, trust God with your loss. Trust God with your loss. 
I guess at the heart of this passage, it's all about God restoring to his people what they've lost. We've been given a a peek around the corner, if you like, into the future. But the challenge for us is to trust God in our present, or perhaps with our immediate future. Especially when, like Israel here, we have suffered a great deal, we've experienced loss, or when we've been brought to grief. Will we trust God with our loss? The story is told of, of two children who were being transported to safety on a battleship during World War II. The boy is about seven years old and his sister is about the same age. And the boy is uh, playing with his toy truck um, along the, sort of the, the railings of the ship. And he, he, he drops it and the truck falls into the sea. He runs up to the captain. Captain, stop the ship. My truck has fallen into the sea. And of course, the captain doesn't do that because they're on course for a mission. Uh, the girl, his sister, is, is, is playing with a ball on the deck, bouncing the ball along the deck, as, as, as you do. And the ball bounces down one of those funnel things you see in the deck and, and goes down to the engine room. And, and, and the girl runs up to the captain and says, Captain, please, can, can you get my ball? So the captain sends a crewmate downstairs, back to the, down to the engine room, finds the ball, and gives it back to the girl. At some point in the voyage, uh, one of the sailors on the ship falls overboard, and the captain immediately stops the ship in order to haul the man out of the sea where he would have died. Now, seeing all this, the, the boy asked the captain, well, hang on, this isn't fair, is it? <laughs> my truck fell in, and you didn't do anything. Oh, wh- wh- why did you retrieve my sister's ball? Why did you go and stop that bloke who fell in, fell in the water? And the captain answered him, recovering the truck would have taken off the course, would have taken us off the mission. Recovering the ball was easy, and recovering the man was essential. And I promise you, When we get to port, I will buy you a truck myself. The point is that in our voyage in life, we can trust the captain. He knows what's best for his mission. And he knows what's best for his crew. Friends, we will lose things in life. Things which are are incredibly precious to us. We pray, and sometimes those things are restored to us like that ball. We pray, and sometimes they're not. But regardless, we can always trust the captain. Above all, God is committed to his mission to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is committed to make us, his people, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, we can be certain from passages like Micah chapter 4, that once we reach port, once we hit the heavenly Jerusalem, All that we've lost on our voyage will be restored. Friends, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes to Mount Zion. Because we know what's just around the corner. Let's pray. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and all through the mediation of Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Father God, we praise you for our king. We praise you for our captain, the one who went before us, who climbed Mount Zion, and there as our king bled and died for us, that we might enter your holy, holy, holy presence. We praise you for that, Lord. And we praise you for this vision of the future, a future where we'll have peace 
ease, security, and full restoration of everything we've lost in our service to you. Lord, help us to trust you with our present. And more so, help us to trust you with our future. And live that last day's lifestyle now. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.